New stories were coming in about this strange virus in Wuhan, China. It was weeks before we saw the first cases in the U.S. As the numbers went up each day, my curiosity got the best of me, and I started plotting the curves. Hear stories from real people all over the world and how they've responded. I'm Sally Hendrick, founder of Shout Your Cause, and this is COVID-19, The World Responds. Hi, Allison. My name is Sally Hendrick. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Sally. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. I am excited to talk to you about what's going on because you're in Tennessee, I'm in Tennessee, and I'm speaking with people from all over the world about what's happening with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic uh, response. Um, the, the thing is here, and we've got something we have to deal with and potentially manage and it's spreading all around and I wanted to you know ask you a little bit about you know what are you doing like what kind of doctor are you and you know what do you do yeah no that's a great question Sally and I'm glad you're doing this so I'm a cardiologist uh, which means I take care of people who have heart disease and we know that patients with heart disease seem to be having a higher risk mm -hmm. of having a bad outcome if they get this virus so I actually specialize in heart failure, um, but I see all sorts of different patients. Now, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but I'm actually working in Kentucky right now. And so it's been pretty eye-opening to me to see the difference between the two communities as well, uh, just sort of as the, uh, the response of the leaders in, in both uh, states uh, has been different. Yes, and I noticed that the other day there was a press conference from the Kentucky governor uh, talking about what was going on in Kentucky versus what was happening in Tennessee. So it's very interesting perspective that you have both of that. So thank you. I'm glad that, that I know that. Um, are you working at all in Chattanooga right now? I am not working in Chattanooga right now. I am working in, uh, in Kentucky doing cardiology, both in, inpatient and outpatient. I can kind of explain to you what we've done there if you have any interest in how it's affected our daily practice. Yeah, definitely would like to know what's going on with that. Yeah, no, so, um, so I work at an hospital and starting last week we moved to telemedicine for the majority of the patients. Mm -hmm. So in the past you could do telemedicine, but there was some pretty strict legislation about that. And so CMS and Medicare last week loosened that up. And so it was able, you can actually do it over Zoom, over Facebook Messenger, mm -hmm. um, over DoxyMe, over FaceTime. And in the past, you couldn't use any of those methods to do a virtual visit. It had to be a HIPAA compliant software. But we know it's the right thing for our patients, especially for these routine follow-ups. You know, if you have heart disease or heart failure, you need your routine follow-up. I mean, that's what helps keep you out of the hospital. But right. when you're in the office and get around people, you can't be socially distant. So we started doing that last week. And by this past week, I would say we were at 95% telemedicine visits. Uh, we still kept the office open. So if someone was really ill, they would, we felt they would be at lower risk coming into our office than going to the ER mm -hmm. where all of the patients with COVID are going. But the overwhelming majority of our visits have been via, just like this, via video, or for our patients that don't have video, we've been doing phone visits because we feel like that's safer for our patients otherwise. Now, if they have symptoms of the COVID-19, are you then telling them on the phone what they need to do to make sure they isolate themselves? 
Yes, we, you know, the, the, I found that a lot of our visits, we've talked about COVID as much as their chronic uh, coronary artery disease or their heart failure. And we have, you know, from, from my perspective, based on everything I've read and what the CDC's recommended, uh, if you have fever, chills, myalgias, the same sorts of things, muscle aches and pains that you would get with the flu, you should basically probably assume that's COVID. Um, and, you know, the people who really get into trouble, about 80% of people will have a mild illness that don't need to be in a hospital. Right. About, you know, 15% will be more ill and about 5% will require critical um, care services, things like ICUs and ventilators. Mm -hmm. And all of that seems to be associated with chest pain complaints and shortness of breath. So I've been telling people, as long as you don't have shortness of breath or chest pain, I think you're okay at home. If you have some way to monitor your oxygen level, and a lot of our patients do because, because there's so much virtual technology now, right. uh, as long as your oxygen levels are staying, you know, within a normal range, I would say, you know, above 92%, it's probably okay to be at home. Now, do you know how long, if they are potentially holding this virus, how long is it before it passes that they can actually step out of this self-quarantine situation? Well, I think it's still, we don't really know is what I would tell you is the, is the true answer. If you look for healthcare workers, you know, most places are saying seven days from the onset of symptoms, you know, after the symptoms have gotten better before you would come back around and then you would need to wear a face mask. Um, it probably depends on where you go. Um, I would say as long as you can stay away from other people, the better. There's been some data that people can shed the virus mm -hmm. asymptomatically or without symptoms for up to 30 days after an infection. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I think we think the median is probably a, a week or so, but, you know, we, we don't really, we don't really know. We're learning more about this every single day. Okay. So in other words, the people that are not showing those symptoms, and I've heard this, I've heard super shedders. Yes. Is that, is that what it is? And the super shedders are passing this around potentially for, you know, longer periods of time or for at least uh, not knowing that they're passing it around. Maybe they don't even have any symptoms ever. Is that a po possible as well? That's possible. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, sort of springtime in the South here. So, I mean, most of us have a little bit of allergies or a sniffly nose, you know, mm -hmm. when everything blooming out, especially as warm as it is right now. Right. Um, and so it's hard to know. Some people have a very mild illness. You know, when you go back and look at antibodies, they didn't really even know they were sick. And so that's what it's part of what makes the social distancing so important because most people will be spreading the virus before they ever have a symptom. And so, you know, you may think you feel fine, but you're out there, you know, at a party like the, like some of these, as I was driving through college campus, I saw some, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, groups of 10 or 15 people out relaxing college kids. Yeah. It's probably not a good idea. Okay, I understand. And of course, we've heard a lot in the news about the spring breakers that were in Florida over the last couple of weeks and so forth. Now, um, as far as you know, you work, you're working in Kentucky, but you're from Chattanooga. So are you living in Chattanooga right now and going to Kentucky for your practice? I am. I am a, you know, I'd been in Kentucky for three weeks and last week came back for a weekend and sort of the same thing now. And I'll be gone for a couple of weeks. You know, right now there aren't travel restrictions. You know, I'm anticipating that if things get worse, that may happen. And I may end up having, you know, having to stay in, in Kentucky. The, the governor of Kentucky had actually made a statement yesterday advising Kentuckians not to visit Tennessee. Uh, yeah. 
I know. I saw that. <laughs> because there, I think it was yesterday. It was one day this week because there weren't the same sort of um, uh, movement uh, containment, I think, that they've seen in Kentucky. Right. And so what are you seeing personally, like from a personal standpoint, when you are at home versus when you're in Kentucky? Do you see a big difference there? Yes. So I drove, uh, so for two weeks, I've driven from, from Kentucky, uh, uh, Frankfort, Kentucky to Chattanooga, and it's all been interstate, and it's been pretty dead. I mean, the city is, there's not very many people there, you know, restaurants were closed uh, mm -hmm. last week, or, or dining rooms um, the week before last. And so in Frankfort, in Kentucky? Uh, yeah, in Kentucky, and uh, salons and gyms and all that were closed last week as well. And so when you're driving around during the day, there's just not very many cars, you know, almost a lot of people have everyone, but non-essential uh, workers have been moved to telework if possible. And so there's just not very much traffic. You know, I go out and take a walk every evening and there's very few people out moving around. Um, and then when I came back to Chattanooga, when I was driving back to Chattanooga between I would say Knoxville and Chattanooga, it seems like a normal amount of traffic to me. I mean, it's no, no different than what it normally was. And, when I'm on the interstate coming from Kentucky, there's, there's really not that many, not that much traffic. It's a very palpable difference. Well, what about on the streets in Chattanooga as far as people moving around? Yeah. So, you know, I honestly, I, I was over on the Shallowford Road side of town last week, which is one of the busier sides and I couldn't tell much of a difference. I mean, it was pretty busy. It was the middle of the afternoon. It was about two 30 and there was a lot of traffic and a lot of people going around, you know, move, moving around. Uh, now in our neighborhood, yeah, yeah, in our neighborhood, I, you know, I can't tell much. I mean, there's people out walking around, but everybody seems to be, you know, trying to stay away from each other. <laughs> I haven't seen large uh, groups of people. So, you know, I think, I think it's probably in neighborhoods, it seems like people's doing a better job. Yeah. <laughs> so in all of this, I know that, you know, we're not in a situation here in Tennessee or in Kentucky yet where it's, you know, like it is in New York or Italy or whatever, which are really scary stories coming out of there. So what is your biggest fear about this of what could be happening in the next two or three weeks? Yeah, you know, so I have a lot of friends in New York. Chicago is also hard hit right now, mm -hmm. as well as Seattle and California. And then, of course, Louisiana is, you know, yeah, Louisiana. New Orleans and then Atlanta is uh, getting hit pretty hard right now as well. And so, you know, what, what, every, what it seems is all of those places are such um, tight um, living structures that it's hard to be socially, it's been much harder to be socially distanced. And that's when the virus spreads so rapidly when people are in close proximity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so what I hope doesn't happen is that we see in, in more rural areas or, or areas that aren't quite as urban as those places that we take for granted that it isn't going to happen here and that we have over-prepared and then people become very lax and then we start seeing rapid spread. Um, you know, the, the, if you look at modeling, I'm not an epidemiologist, but if you look at epidemiologic modeling, the peak is not supposed to happen until probably early May. Uh, and that's still, you know, weeks of time for us to continue this social distancing. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope is that we have overprepared and it never comes. That tsunami of patients coming in that overwhelms the healthcare system never comes. And we can say, oh my gosh, we overprepared. That would be the best case scenario. But what I fear is people are going to become lax of being in the house and staying away. And, mm -hmm. you know, they aren't going to see as many sick people as we thought. 
early on, like not every place is going to be New York, not every place is going to be uh, New Orleans, and then people become lax again, and we don't do what we should. Right. Because the problem is, you know, we're, we're already short on these personal protective equipment. And that's going to take a while to replete that population. And, you know, you go through a lot of those with each of these patients in, the, in just a normal setting in a hospital. How many would you go through in a day? Like, let's say you had, how many patients do you normally have anyway in a day? Um, it probably depends on where you're at. If you're in an ICU or if you're on the floor, but if you're, you know, if you're, say if you're in a typical 10 bed ICU, which is, you know, a smaller side of an ICU and each patient has, you know, a concern for COVID. Mm -hmm. So the problem is multifold right now. We can send the test, but in most places, the test is taken five to seven days to come back. So even the people that you suspect, you have to, you have to pretend that they're positive and use all of that aggressive personal protective equipment. And so for patients who are positive requires the most equipment and you really, you know, want to be careful because it lives on surfaces for up to 72 hours. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be careful and everybody wears a gown, gloves, an N95 respirator, which is the special one that filters out the microns, especially if you're doing anything that is, uh, has aerosolized or, you know, uh, sputum or anything coming out right. and, and goggles or a face shield and probably a hairnet if you want to be the safe, you know, something over your hair if you want to be the mm -hmm. safest. But if you think about every single time you go into a patient room, you have to do that. And then coming out, you have to take all of that off and try not to touch yourself with everything and then dispose of it. For if each patient? For each patient, you yeah. You have to change every time you go from room right. to room. And, and you and know, nurses, oh my gosh, because nurses are going through it how many times a day? That's, oh, that's multiple, multiple. Yeah. You know, and, and then if you have a patient that's having breathing difficulties, you have more members of the care team. So what, you know, what every hospital is trying to do is to mm -hmm. simplify care as much as possible. So if I know I need labs checked, try to get the labs checked just once a day or put everything together so that when the nurse goes in there to do vital signs and, you know, give medicines, they can do the lab draws and everything with just one set of equipment. But, you know, it's really thinking about things like that. And it is a, you know, it is a big ordeal, especially when you know someone's COVID positive to make sure you don't touch yourself with any of the materials you're taking off. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and then what I would think about too would be, you know, you're coming in as the doctor and the nurses are coming in, the respiratory therapists are coming in and, and all of the people and imagine being the patient mm -hmm. and seeing all of that. That's got to be an incredibly difficult emotional experience mm -hmm. for the patient. Absolutely. You know, and, and hospitals aren't allowing visitors right now. So the patients are by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're trying to do, you know, CMS is also allowed for virtual consults. So I can do a consult over a phone to save personal protective equipment. Right. Unless there's some reason I need to go physically go in the room and touch the patient, which with cardiology, sometimes there is, sometimes we do need to, sometimes we do need to listen, but you know, we're really trying to minimize the number of people who go in the room because it's a potential exposure every time. So knowing all of these things that you guys are having to change as far as the care and, and, you know, multitasking and, and putting more things within one visit to the room, 
Um, do you think that that's going to potentially change the way that healthcare is looked at later on, that maybe some efficiencies would come out of this? Like, do you think that there's like a hopeful thing that could come out of all of this? I, I think so. You know, hopefully one, one of the things that I think, you know, I've been using telemedicine for years, uh, but there's so many restrictions on it from a regulatory standpoint. We haven't had wide adoption of telemedicine, but hopefully, you know, just telemedicine services can expand. Mm -hmm. When you're in a state like Tennessee, where we have a large rural population that frequently travels long distances to come see us for subspecialty care, especially, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a subspecialist, a cardiologist, there tends to be primary care doctors in most communities, but there's not always cardiology. And I'll have patients that'll come an hour or two to see me for a checkup. Hopefully we can expand and do more of that over the phone. And then even providing services to rural hospitals, you know, that's one of the challenges with a lot of these small hospitals or critical access hospitals. They don't have subspecialists, subspecialists because that, it's not very large and you don't have enough patients to see. But hopefully we can expand into that. And then, you know, hopefully we also understand the, the importance of be, being prepared and having a nationwide disaster system. You know, I think this is, has shown that we really do not have a, a great way to handle a national emergency in a unified way from our medical systems. That's true. And then all of this, you know, running around to try to find the right equipment and so on and so forth to equally share where it's needed or equitably share where it's needed um, so that you don't have stockpiles sitting in New York if you need it in Memphis or Louisiana or whatever and that and people don't know where everything is if there was some sort of national data bank or something like that where you had all of that information keyed in then that would be um, an opportunity I would think to improve on our entire healthcare system. No, I agree. You know, while if you look at the numbers that are expected, we probably have a shortage of all of these things just overall, but there's huge, huge gaps. You know, like right now, we don't need any ventilators, and New York has a huge shortage of ventilators. So if, right. if we had a very well-coordinated system, we would ship all of our ventilators to New York, and then as things, as we got more ventilators, we would replace them in these other, in other places. Mm -hmm. But we don't have anything like that. And, you know, and with the technology we have today that, I mean, it would require setting up a system, but it would be a, it's a possibility, I think. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Is there anything at all that you want to share in addition to what we already talked about that, um, that we could share with our viewers and our listeners? Yeah, you know, I think while it's hard to be socially distant, it's the right thing. You know, hopefully we'll all realize that, that we don't need all the things that we thought we did. Uh, and, right, and get, you know, and hopefully we'll all get to enjoy some time with our family and, you know, be outside and, and do some of the other things that we kind of forget about. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I've been still um overwhelmed by the kindness and support of other people. It's still really nice, you know, being in the hospital, even when people are really afraid and scared, mm -hmm. you still see lots of tiny, tiny acts of kindness all day long. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, especially in these times when we're all fearful and we don't know what the future looks like to so remember we're all people and let's try to treat each other with kindness. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Yes, me too. Thank you. And I'm, I hope this turns out well. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Subscribe to this podcast to hear all our episodes. 
Go to shoutyourcause.com to our podcast page for information on our guests and notes from this show.